Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. I'm your host, Ali Hussain, and this week I sat down with Rachel Fairley, Global VP of Brand Marketing for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. In this episode, you'll hear Rachel's Pareto principle for allocating investment across a campaign, why you need to take a holistic approach to building your brand, and the importance of staying curious about how marketing works no matter where you are in your career. From the CMO crowd, this is How to Grow a CMO. Hello and welcome to How to Grow a CMO, the podcast that helps you become a better marketing leader. On the show, we hear stories and secrets from leading CMOs and discuss the values, skills, and strategies they use to drive growth for the biggest B2B brands in the world. How to Grow a CMO is part of the CMO Crowd, the peer-led community for senior marketing leaders. You can stay up to date with all our episodes, events, and exclusive member-only content at cmocrowd.com. My guest today is Rachel Fairley. For over 20 years, Rachel has held senior positions at several well-known B2B brands and agencies such as Landor, Sage, Oracle, and now HPE. Rachel is leading the repositioning of the HPE brand to be the edge-to-cloud leader, delivering a data-driven strategy to drive from brand to revenue. Recently, she was also named a top 100 B2B marketing leader in technology by Hot Topics. Rachel, welcome to How to Grow a CMO. Oh, thank you. Could you start with the, the first question I ask all our guests? Could you start by telling me the story of how you got into marketing? Well, I grew up in Edinburgh. So summer holidays were working at one of the international festivals. So I had, in my teenage years, experience of being a PR officer for the international festival and a programmer for the, the international book festival. And I did some work for the international film festival as well, curating a programme of films for them. So I guess that was sort of the start of marketing. But after university, I went and actually worked as a legal assistant uh, for a lawyer who was selling the business, well, general counsel, who was part of selling the business to another company. And he valued the brand as part of his work. And that astonished me. And so when the business got sold, I went and interviewed for lots of different jobs and ended working in the PR department, writing CEO speeches and doing analyst relations and PR learned a lot and then was asked to do my first brand sort of seven weeks to create a brand from scratch and get it launched over Christmas, New Year, with the agency kind of going bust at the Christmas holidays and having to get the artwork off a server. I think I had to speak to the police to get that. Um, So that was my kind of introduction into marketing and um, brand and I've been hooked on the sort of brand angle of marketing ever since. But that was how I got into it. It wasn't something my careers advisor told me about or anything like that. <laughs> it's also possibly the, the first example I've heard of having to go to the police in order to get your brand assets back. Oh, I know. Yeah, that was, I mean, I remember on Boxing Day sitting in my mum's living room proofing business cards. I mean, literally, like it was so last minute, you know, so yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Amazing. I'm sure things have calmed down since then, but uh, maybe we'll get into that in a bit. One of the things I have to admit that stood out from your CV is that so many of the companies you've worked for have actually gone bust. So correlation or causation? <laughs> You're so nice. I think it's actually to do with 
being in businesses when they're trying to reposition themselves and sometimes they end up going for sale and to me that's a game of pac-man you know and that those early days in telecoms that's what was happening all the fiber optics were laid and it was all about the different businesses splitting into consumer and business parts and then kind of coming back together and then being eaten by a bigger company and then that company being eaten again and then that you know there was also yeah there was a bit of uh, corporate fraud I think during that it was the old Enron days wasn't it so you know there's 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 been a fair deal of change and I think people don't realize how many businesses go through that kind of change over their lifetime how they morph but I've always ended up in businesses at the moment where they're trying to kind of rebirth or get traction again or or reposition themselves in some way and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and when it does work sometimes that means the business continues sometimes it doesn't I mean that first job was a great example because I worked on a bit of business in legal that then got bought by another business that then got split into two parts, that then got bought by another business, that then had fraud and ended up going away. And each time I was involved in making the brand and killing the brand that I just made, sometimes within months. So it's a really good lesson in not giving up your life for work. (laughs) Your precious thing may not exist in a few months, but also in understanding the value exchange between businesses and employees and how you can have a job one minute and not have a job another minute and how your job can change and sort of being able to roll with it really and keeping calm when things are going crazy around you. I mean, I remember one conversation in a lift with a very senior finance person who saw me and went, hi, Rachel, how are you? And I was like, I'm great, how are you? And he said, how's your CV? And I literally got out the lift knowing we were about to get bought or go bust, you know. So I kind of enjoy it because it means that you're right at a point in that business where you can make a difference one way or the other. And it's very obvious whether that difference happens. And that kind of gives me quite a bit of job satisfaction, even when it doesn't work out. And having been in those situations where there's significant change a number of times, what advice would you give to other marketing leaders who find themselves in similar situations? Well, what I've learned is that when you get a job, you wish you had known that you were going to get that job because you'd have felt less anxious in the run up to it. And I've also found that when you lose your job, knowing what is happening (laughs) one way or the other also brings your anxiety levels down. So I think you feel very calm if you are sure and confident of what you have to offer and how you can be really valuable and how you can make a difference. And I think when you lose that, when you get foggy, which can happen after ill health or uh, becoming a parent or taking time out for some reason or having a really bad boss or not agreeing with the company strategy and, you know, trying to change it and not being able to or whatever, that in those situations, it, it can be quite difficult because really what I find brings me calmness and makes me work really well is when I know I've got the right skills and I'm in the right job and also at the right time. Because sometimes, you know, in my line of work, when you really want to help businesses reposition to grow, you can arrive too early and everybody sort of wants you to do it, but they're not really ready. You can arrive 
too late. I have been in so many situations where I've walked through the door and the money's run out, the time's run out, the work is terrible. And you're like, can you do this in 1% of the budget in, you know, 0% of the time, that kind of thing. That's really tricky. And then there's this sort of perfect sweet spot, which is where your skills are needed. They want you. (laughs) And you've got just about enough time and runway to get it right. And that is golden. It was like one year at HPE in September. And I, I mean, I just feel so grateful because this is one of those jobs where I feel like I'm in the right place at the right time with the right skills, but it doesn't often happen. So on the 30 brands I think I've worked on over the years, there's only a handful where the timing has been spot on. I love that. I think it's something that I see repeatedly that actually the fit is, is what makes such a difference. You see people go into one role and, and struggle or, you know, don't necessarily add the value that they'd hope that you'd hope they might and then find another role and suddenly they blossom and, and become this incredible kind of high performer and it's so easy to look at the individuals rather than the context around it and you know I'm a big fan of this idea of the extended mind I don't know if you've ever heard of it no the idea that actually as as people and our our intelligence isn't actually necessarily about the kind of little lump of matter between our ears but actually a huge amount of it is dependent upon the, the people we work with, the context we're in, the tools we can use and, and all of those sorts of things too. Well, that's it. So one of my colleagues in HR, she recommended that we all do these interviews called stay interviews. And you basically ask people 10 questions that are really nicely ordered, actually. But are basically like, you know, if you could change one thing about your job, the culture or the company, what would it be? Uh, what makes you excited about coming to work? Do you think your skills are being used? questions like that and what it totally frees up is that person in the box they're in to be able to talk about who they are what their ambitions are where they have expertise you didn't even know about because you just assumed that that was what they did for a living and actually it turns out they've done like 20 things and it's a really good conversation it's actually the best framing for a development conversation you can have I'm, I'm gonna do it I mean, I'm going to do it every six months from now onwards and always do it at the beginning of a job because you have to take people out of the situation they're in and understand what they can bring. You know, leadership, I think, is about finding that fit for the person as best you can because basically it is that value exchange, right? The business need things doing. They need expertise, experience. They need they need the work done. And then you have individuals who bring that and give their time and their energy, their effort, their knowledge, their experience, their expertise, all of that. And it's all about trying to find the right fit. And I think, you know, conversations like that are quite freeing. I think often we just go through the motions and hope people are just going to do their job and just stay where they are and just keep going. But when you say things out loud to each other, you suddenly hear each other and you're like, I didn't know you wanted to do that. My goodness. Or I didn't know you had those skills. We've been really struggling without anyone to kind of bring those skills. Because my first boss told me, you have to find people that are better than you at what they do, right? And then you have to figure out how to work with them. Be really good at what you do, but between you, that's how you get it done. And I even call it collaboration, call whatever you like. But if you feel like you're the expert in the room on something and you don't consider yourself an expert, then go find one, you know? So it's it's that, it's figuring out what people really bring, especially because some of the most interesting colleagues are ones that have actually done quite a variety, worked in different types of businesses, different business models or different periods of a company's growth or different departments. And and so what you see is not necessarily what their expertise is. 
How to Grow a CMO is a CMO crowd podcast brought to you by The Marketing Practice, a global integrated B2B marketing agency that brings together all the skills you need in one place to design and run marketing programs. You can access all our videos, reports, and a peer-led community designed to help you keep on learning at cmocrowd.com. So now you've found that fit that we were talking about at HP. You've been there for almost a year now, I believe. What originally attracted you to the company? Well, it's one of the oldest tech brands in the world. It's got a fantastic range of products and services. But it is also, you know, that the cloud market has changed a lot since it was born. You know, people entered the cloud market looking for almost like apps or sort of public cloud capability. And over the last few years, it's changed really significantly. So really what everyone's looking for now is hybrid cloud, whether they're doing it accidentally or on purpose. And HPE is like amazingly positioned for that. But it's how do you reinvent what is a sort of six-year-old brand after the, I think it's the biggest corporate split in history between HP and HPE. But also, how do you reinvent a brand that is that old? How do you keep giving it life and give it another 80 years? And um, the CMO and the C, I mean, they're just, there's an amazing team, just an amazing team and a really clear business strategy. And that allows you to do amazing work in brand. Because if you understand what the business strategy is and you follow I mean, I always follow the same methodology, not all my life, but it's what I've discovered works, is you do a proper diagnosis, work out what's relevant, differentiate and authentic for every one of your audiences and how that comes together. And then you write a brand strategy, which includes kind of, you know, why you exist, what you do, how you look, feel, sound, you know, who you are, just those four things. I'm not a believer in mission, vision position all that kind of stuff I'm afraid I think I like to keep it quite simple and then you work out what the architecture is like what should go to market how are buyers going to buy how is talent going to engage how do employees get engage what's going to work for analysts and for shareholders actually as well and you you figure that out and that is your strategy and then you have to work out how to build the brand so that you're easy to mind and immediately retarget and drive that down into being easy to buy And then that experience has to work all the way through the life cycle of that customer being a customer. And you have to always think of them as a buyer, actually, because they always have a choice to leave you. You know, all the customers have multiple products and services from multiple providers. So even if they're your customer, they're also someone else's customer. But that opportunity to actually work on brand-led marketing is so important when you've got such a clear business strategy and the market is so hot and moving and morphing. Because that's when brand can play a huge lever, as long as it's not about kind of brand campaigns that don't actually ladder down into the demand gen and the journeys, as long as it's not kind of superficial. But then you get to situations where you have to make the way in which you're engaging your audiences work really hard. And I've got some amazing colleagues that I'm working with on that. And then also that you have to get the creative and the message to cut through. So you have to build a brand that's really consistent and fresh. And if you don't get that right, then you can be there, but like wallpaper, (laughs) or you can just show up so in so many different ways that, that, you know, nobody really knows that you're there. People don't know that you're there to buy, then they won't consider you, you know, and if people who bought you don't feel like they made the right choice, they won't buy from you again. So it's getting that seamless experience and everything lining up. And that's really heavy lifting by everyone like not brand but like by everyone the whole organization because you've got to line up 
how you appear in your website at your events, how you engage people and draw them in, be they talent or buyers. And then you have to see that all the way through into the platforms and services that they use through that whole sales enablement and, and everything. So it's just, it's sort of a joy because it's it's proper work. It's really proper work. And it'll be very obvious whether the work works or not. And I quite like that because, you know, we're here to do work that makes an impact. I, well, I am. I, I just, I can't, I can't do this if it's not going to have an impact. I would just feel incredibly sad about doing all these hours every day for it not to amount to anything. I love to hear, to hear you talking about that deep deep connection between brand and demand which is so often on so many whether it's kind of binet and field graphs and charts or various different models and, and you know wow there are hundreds of models out there for whether it's brand or demand or how to think of the two and how to split media investment it's so often treated as two very very separate things and i think that one of the negative knock-on implications of that in the narrative and in the in the academic literature is that people start to then separate it practically speaking as well through their marketing activities so brand sits somewhere over here and demand sits somewhere off to the right and the, the two will never meet but um to hear you talking about the way that the two are intimately connected through your process through the way you actually build the brand is great and, and something i wholeheartedly agree with there was something else you touched on there you started to skirt around the idea of mental availability i think and kind of starting to wander into byron sharp territory and i did want to ask you a little bit about the relationship between loyalty or at least heavy buyers and market penetration because i've read a couple of things that you've written where you lean towards the value of maybe acquiring new customers maybe even over building kind of more valuable relationships with the current customers so i'd just love to hear more a little about your point of view on that yeah i don't think it's either or so if you assume that your customers always have a choice just like buyers then you have to always be engaging people as if they have that choice. But if you want to grow your market share, you have to reach people who seldom or rarely buy from you. You can't just sell to the people that you already have. So to me, that's if you're market oriented, you are basically addressing buyers, whether they are an existing customer or they aren't an existing customer, and you are making yourself relevant and differentiated to them in a way that is credible, is authentic. So, yes, if you read all the Ritson, Byron Sharp and Jenny's, you know, work, which is fascinating, there are reasons people come to market to shop, right? And in our world, they don't come very often. It's every sort of four or five years. So in any one quarter, you've got about 5% of the market shopping. So when they're not shopping, you have to plant these seeds, these tiny seeds in their heads, knowing that most people can't be bothered to remember brands. And it's, you know, it's not, this is not something that buyers start each day going, I must remember which companies sell which things, you know. So you have to be relevant to, to buyers when they're not in market. And that is, yes, and a more emotional message, but you have to plant the seeds of what makes you relevant, differentiated and authentic for the reasons they will eventually come buying for, category entry points, right? And then when they signal <laughs> that they are buying, and you can see it because they start to shift to more specific category entry point messages that are getting more functional, more pragmatic, more rational. But when that happens, then you can take them down the funnel by whichever way they wish to go. But it's still connected to the memories that you've planted in their heads that if they're looking for the particular things your company is good at, then they should at least come shopping and look at you, right? 
but when they come shopping, that you then have journeys that help them. Because buyers can come in through category entry points. They can come in through product types or service types and subtypes. They can come in because they know your company name, the brand. They can come because they know of our product brand name, either the old name or the existing name. They can come in because they're looking for industry solutions. So it doesn't matter which way they come in, you have to greet them at the door. But the best way to leave the memories and then to drive that into demand when they're shopping is actually to be associated with the category entry points that you stand the greatest chance in your market of standing out on and people believing that you really can help them. And I mean, my approach is you start with just a few of those category entry points and you really try and build that momentum around those and then you add in other ones and you have to watch what's happening with category entry points because some are not important in the buying decision making but you can see they're going to be zeitgeist so for example sustainability is not driving choice at the moment in our markets but it's there and it's it's quite high in a couple of countries but that is going to tip I mean I would totally predict that's going to tip So you have to start building your credibility up in those areas because they are future kind of decision-making category entry points. So I I think there is a methodology that can be used that actually lines up your portfolio, lines up your journeys, lines up how you run your campaign. I always believe in one campaign, especially for that kind of structure. But you have to allow for people walking through different doors. It's a bit like having a department store. You've got to guide people to what they want, but it should be one department store only a few doors in, the doors that they like to use, you know, let it be market in. That makes sense. <laughs> it, it does. I know there was a lot to unpack there, but it, it did make sense. I know Jenny Romaniuk has written a, that fantastic paper on category entry points in B2B, which which I really did enjoy reading. But I have to admit, there are, there are quite a few nuances and I think different perspectives from some of the work that the, the B2B LinkedIn Institute produced, particularly around time and market the idea of mental availability, which sometimes doesn't feel like it really chimes with what we see actually happening. And, and I think part of it is that that idea of being in market for, you know, 5% of the market are in, in market at any one time to buy, I don't think quite seems to take into account the length of sales cycles. And from my perspective, a lot of the clients I work with are already kind of on that long list. So, you know, very few people are going to consider putting in a new CRM without considering Salesforce, for example. So there's a slightly different angle that I think isn't necessarily covered by by some of the work that they tend to produce. So they haven't said 5%. I've said it because I've asked our buyers how often they come shopping, right? So I think it is different in every market. But the reality is, is you don't buy from someone you've not heard of or that you didn't know was selling things that could solve those problems. And then as you come into market... If they're not already, frankly, on your consideration list, they probably won't make it on. Because what people tend to do is that they have their list, they have a short list, certainly in our market, they have a short list, and then they go shopping to find the longer list, almost to reinforce to themselves that their short list was the right short list. So you have to be in that market and perceived as being in that market. So it's an always on for your audience. It's just that when they signal, when you can see that they are signaling and engaging in a way that shows you they're actually starting to consider specific solutions, that's when they become potential customers and start entering your pipeline, right? Byron Sharps talks about, you know, you have to mass market. And Ritson was kind of, no, you have to really target. But now he's, well, I think you have to do both. And then I think you have to look at your industry and really understand 
what's actually happening for your buyers in your market. But you can't wait for them to show up on Oxford Street, walking down the street to go, hi, let me introduce my brand to you. You know, I know you're looking for a ski jacket because you've just booked a skiing holiday and you've never heard of me. But please, will you consider me? At which point the person goes, "Ah, no, I want to go to this shop first because that's the one I think I'm going to get from so I'm going to go there first and I might come later and it's that right and the behavior is really similar because at the end of the day the the buyers are human beings so they're at work the decision making process is different it might be less their family and friends or their children or their grandparents or advertising kind of working on them it may be more the procurement colleague or somebody who's using the software practically or hardware or whatever you know it's a different kind of buyers group at work, you really have the same thing as a consumer, which is you don't want to make the wrong choice. You really want to make the right choice. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want to waste your money or your time, right? It doesn't, as a human being. So you are constantly looking for that reassurance. And brand is a shortcut to a decision, right? If you are already convinced that brand can serve your needs, then they're on the table to be considered. But if you don't believe that of the brand, it's really hard to convince somebody when they're already looking at something which is all about features and functionality, that your brand can actually help them in their job, in their business. So even when you're in pipeline or become a customer, the brand is constantly doing a job of saying, you made the right choice, you made the right choice, keep going, keep going, you made the right choice, this is great, it's going to work, you know. This is the yin and the yang, right, is that it's not, brand is not just about marketing, it is all about the experience people have and how they feel years after, how they're consuming the product service. Was it as advertised? Did it actually do the things that they thought it was going to do? And then the other aspect of brand is how you get all the people in your business to actually deliver on this experience. Because, you know, everyone has their own goals, their own teams, their own objectives, but they all eventually roll up to what the business strategy is. And if you're going to be successful as a brand, you have to be consistent and fresh in absolutely everything. The problem with that often is that people get inside a business get really bored, like hundreds of years before consumers do, mm-hmm. before the buyer does. I mean, genuinely a lifetime before. So that's the other thing is, what's the reach and the frequency? How many times has your buyer seen that advert or message? (laughs) Because if it's just a couple of times, it's not done its job yet. So there's also this sort of relationship between how much you spend of your budget on getting in front of people and getting them to see and hear you versus how much you spend on making things. So for example, my rule of thumb on a campaign is is 80% media budget, 10% kind of content and ads, and 10% localization and production. And it's roughly that. So if somebody wants to spend, you know, five mil on making stuff and has two mil to get it in front of people, you already know the proportions you won't get the return. You know, there's lots of little things that we've worked out. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Byron Sharp and his institute's work. I think the B2B stuff from LinkedIn is fantastic. And Mark Ritson, I adore. But you have to learn your own market and you have to figure out for your buyers, for your talent, how you apply this. And then you have to really listen and listen and watch and watch and read the data. And you have to optimize, 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 optimize. And that is, I think, why marketeers have a job, because it's not just about the data. It's not just about methodologies. It's about how your market works and how you address those needs and how you listen and evolve over time. 
fingers crossed, because I don't really want to be replaced with a bit of software. If that's <laughs> I don't know of any software that could replace you from the from the few conversations we've had so far, Rachel. <laughs> You're hilarious. <laughs> Just a few quick fire questions then, um, and if you can respond as, as quickly as you can to these. So first of all, complete this sentence. The qualities I look for in my next exceptional hire are? Oh, curiosity and a can-do attitude. Fantastic. Thank you. I often say that the only problems that really worry me are the ones that I can't see. So I, I try to be open with my team about any challenges I have, mistakes I've made, to create a space where they're comfortable doing the same. What's a mistake that you've made in the past couple of weeks? We're doing a big project and my head of project, which is not mine, I mean, I absolutely adore it, but she's hers. Um, but the head of project explained to me how it was going to work. And I nodded thinking I'd understood. And then something happened where I was like, oh, because it actually causes all sorts of disconnects and slows everything until we've done that bit. And I hadn't realised. And the conversation went along the lines of, but I told you, and I'm like, I know, it's not you, it's me. I'm totally responsible for not understanding. I obviously didn't ask the right questions, or I didn't, I just didn't think it through. And it sort of takes the heat out of the situation, because what you immediately both move to doing is figuring out, well, what do you do? Rather than it being like, well, I've got an email from, you know, no. I mean, I genuinely just didn't understand it and that's on me but it was quite big and has set us back and uh so yes we will make it work <laughs> thank you I, I genuinely think it's healthy for for other marketing leaders to hear their peers go yeah i i screwed up because we all do and it's, it's not always easy for us to talk about in this culture what's something that most people get wrong about you the feedback i've had is that people see me as a kind of very confident, positive, sort of perky person. And that's true. I kind of am, because I'm just really glad to be alive. And I absolutely love my work. And I love my family. And like, I'm just, I feel very like, woohoo, you know, about life. But I'm not always like that, because we're human. And so sometimes I worry that people rely on me being like that in order to get things done. Because what I've learned is that if you are positive and perky and confident and kind of sort of people want to join in and they come with you and they say, to me, oh, you're always so positive, Rachel, and you're so wonderful and all that kind of stuff. And there are moments where you're not and people go, oh, my God, what's wrong? And you're like, genuinely just haven't had a cup of tea for four hours, <laughs> feeling a bit flat or I didn't sleep well or whatever. But it's it's interesting how you're not necessarily allowed to be different person at different times. Yeah. I mean, there are times when I just want to crawl under the desk and have a snooze, you know, and you can't, you've got to keep going. But I think people assume that that's not something that happens to you. <laughs> I mean, that's that thing, right? Nobody's perfect, right? Nobody is perfect. And I think also it's quite weird having now got things that don't work about me physically that you can't see. So people don't realise that I'm deaf. They'll be walking along a corridor and I'll be like, could you go on my right side? I just, even with my hearing aid, I can't hear you. And they'll be like, oh, I didn't, yeah, whoa, I didn't even notice. I didn't know, you know, that kind of, and you're like, well, no. But, you know, in a busy room of like 80 people or whatever it was last week at HQ, like I really struggle to make out who's speaking. And also I can't play sound anymore. 
So somebody goes, Rachel, I literally turn around in a circle <laughs> trying to find them because I don't know where that voice came from. So it does worry me a bit sometimes. People are like, you know, indestructible. And I'm like, oh my God, no, I've got a hole in my head for heaven's sake. I'm a screw. <laughs> um, well, I'd, I'd certainly, yeah, in our conversations, confident and perky, as, as you said, two of the things that absolutely you come across as not out. I can see exactly how people go along with that and how it helps you lead lead your teams. Finally, what's one piece of advice or one idea, either about marketing or about life in general, that you keep coming back to? I stick to marketing. I didn't know when I started out how marketing worked. And I didn't know that you could get training. I don't know how I missed that memo, but I missed it completely. I did history and French at uni because... My grandpa told me I should speak languages if you want to communicate in the world. Very kind of post-war view and loved history, loved history. And it, it teaches you such a discipline because, you know, who's talking? <laughs> Why are they saying the things they're saying? You know, and the rigour of writing up your arguments and your thoughts and so on. But I didn't know you could get into marketing through kind of starting in the field or in product or in corporate or it's a brand. Or I didn't realise there were different ways in until I was quite a few years in. I didn't realise there were courses. I mean, I remember having a conversation with Mark Ritson after I'd just signed up for the mini MBA because I had been ill for an off work for about six months. And I wanted to do it to kind of rebuild my confidence that I could actually remember how to be a marketer because it's weird when somebody like operates in your head. You're like, what's left? Did it, you know, did it get messed with? And um, I remember saying to him like, this is, I think, the pretty much not the first, but the first in years marketing training I've done in ages. I feel like a fraud. And he just laughed and he went, no, you're not. You're doing the training now. So I think my advice would be try and learn how your discipline works and what avenues and opportunities there are to you and think about whether you want to specialise or get lots of different experience. I've had lots of different experience in different parts of marketing and comms and, and, and it's helped me, even though I've had a brand focus for many years. But also, you know, get regular training and be quite discerning about what training you take. Like it has to help you do your job better, I think, not just be for a certificate. That would be my advice. That's brilliant. Thank you. Rachel Fairley, thank you very, very much for being with us today. I have loved this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. See you soon. How to Grow a CMO is a production of the CMO Crowd, brought to you by The Marketing Practice. Make sure you never miss an episode by joining the cmocrowd.com slash podcasts for exclusive member-only content, including events, videos, reports, and more exclusive to the CMO Crowd. My name is Ali Hussain. You've been listening to How to Grow a CMO by the CMO Crowd.